Hey everyone, this is John. And this is Ryan. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best damn Nintendo podcast on the internet. It's the second half of the retro show. You know what we're doing by now. It's going to be the music, it's going to be the movies, all the stuff that came out in November of 2002. Let's get into it. Ryan, right. where do you want to start? Uh, you know, we have a history of just doing the music first. I am a-okay with starting there if you are. Sure. All right, cool. Um, so I, I think you did. You listen to many of the albums, or I think not you really? Listen to at least one of them, to my knowledge. Uh, I did only listen to the one of them. Um, I had aspirations to listen to more, but then I got busier at work than I thought it was going to be. Okay. Well, we'll go through. Them. I mean, I'm sure. I actually started of... doing my job. It was outrageous. Oh wow, that's that's where you're at in life. We actually have to like yeah. do the work that they pay you for. Yeah, gross. Uh, yeah, that's no, kind of shitty. Responsibilities. That's just how it is. Um, oh, so there were like a bunch of, I think, like name noteworthy artists. I think a lot of these you'll just know by name. Uh, so it'll be interesting to get your temperature on what you think of the, these artists in general. Um, but if we're going to start off with pop rock, uh, frankly, a very poorly named group, Audio Slave, released their debut record. Have you heard of Audio Slave? Oh, I know Slave? them. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of an odd name for a band, but that's what they went with, I guess. It's uh, it's Chris Cornell of Soundgarden and basically the trio of Rage Against the Machine that isn't Zack De La Roca. So it's like what Tom Morello, Tim Comerford, and Brad Wilkes. Um, it sort of is you can you can pretty much guess what this band sounds like. It's sort of like you took that kind of grunge rock sound that you would associate Chris Cornell with and putting it over the you know the rage instrumental to an extent i think if anything it's got a little more of like a blues sound than that like kind of rap rock sound i really did not enjoy this record i don't think it's a particularly great one um i, I think it's it's well produced and everyone kind of sounds right it's that sound they're doing the thing that you would expect them to do but i think it's just kind of a boring record overall and it's also 14 tracks in 65 minutes Oof. so just a laborious runtime. If you wanted to just skip to the hits, you know, the opening track, uh, Coach Ice, is pretty okay. And there's a track called Exploder and Like a Stone, which I think are okay. But eh, honestly, it's kind of a forgettable record. I think it's just that there's a lot of name recognition within this group um, and the fact that it's their debut. So there's that. You have uh, Johnny Cash releasing American For The Man Comes Around. Do you know this this, uh, album by any chance? No. This was made, so um, he is currently alive at the time of this being released, but within a year of this album coming out, um, Johnny Cash will pass. Like mm-hmm. he, I think he kind of knows that it's, it's the end days for him. Like He's getting old, his, doesn't have his health about him, um, but he still is able to record this. And I believe there's even going to be a few more posthumous releases from these sessions that he has. Uh, they're recorded with fame music producer rick rubin rick rubin um he, he's worked with with countless artists everyone from like uh you know the beastie boys uh, red hot chili peppers um he works with slayer um he is very um I, i'm not sure he, he he finds a way to accentuate the positive in whatever group he's recording and he does it here very well with uh with johnny cash where he kind of just captures his voice in hi-fi like really immediate really upfront. And the 
uh, musicianship behind it is all very stripped down. So it really is very much about him. And the album is also actually entirely all cover songs. I think there's one original song. Oh, interesting. But the rest of it is cover tracks. What's he covering? A whole diverse slew of stuff. Specifically, um, this is the album that has the track Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, um, where the original Nine Inch Nails song is, of course, about drug addiction. But he makes it more about aging and losing people in his life. Um, they do Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Um, it's a it's a it's a nice selection of music that was uh, important to him throughout his career in country western, as well as some, you know, again like some of these tracks. Like, who would have thought that he would be covering sort of gothic new wave tracks, or that he would cover a track from an industrial artist like Nine Inch Nails? Um, and really makes it his own sort of a good cover um, isn't just like a better recording of the existing song it rebrands it or it puts it in a different context and I think he does a fantastic job with, with all of these tracks and, and doing that so it is a swan song and, and you really don't see lists of greatest cover songs without saying that hurt track come up it's, it really is fantastic also a big seller it's about 3 million copies so um very popular album. Moving on, we've got the Mountain Goats releasing Tallahassee. The Mountain Goats is basically a project from this guy, Josh Darnell. It's funny, he actually had an album come out earlier this year that we talked about called All Hail West Texas. And All Hail West Texas was a very lo-fi effort. Um, basically, he just recorded it with a boom box and a, and a guitar. This one is much more um, lush in its orchestration and production. Um, but it's the same sort of stuff. It's a lot of like um, very world-building songs. Um, specifically, it's about a a couple uh, struggling through uh, through like ma- having having marital issues. So all of the tracks essentially are about that. But he just has a very interesting way of writing songs. He also has a very nasally voice. If you listen to him, he has this like very high-pitched warble, very distinct voice. You the second you hear it, you know it's him. Um, this, is a, this is a very well received record too. People really do love this guy. I think, and I do think this is maybe his best record. Again, he's made so many fucking records, and a lot of them I honestly don't enjoy all that much. But this this one's a pretty solid one. But you know the the album cover isn't great. Yeah, for talent. Oh yeah, it's like isn't it just like a close up shot of some flowers or something? It's like red and green or yeah, and I think it's also like very like almost melty looking like it's supposed to like is it a flower is this an yeah. organ i'm looking at yeah it's uh it's, it's a bit too abstract mm-hmm. i'm gonna judge the album covers now i found my niche oh you're welcome to i actually think album art is, is a very underappreciate underappreciated aspect of music in a lot of ways it really does set a scene or cr- create some kind of environment for or at least an expectation of what you're getting into and you know sometimes what the fuck is that <laughs> It does doesn't like it either. Oh, does trying to figure it out. From watching like too many horror things, I'm just thinking it's a bloody mattress and it's like a vine over it. Hmm. <laughs> that's too abstract. Yeah, that might be what it is. Again, it's intentionally like up close and you can't really make out the detail on it. So, yeah, well, I don't really know. Hmm. But yeah, um, we got. What's next on tap? Oh, uh, an album I think you might may have listened to here, uh, Pearl Jam's Riot Act. I did listen to Riot Act. Okay. Um, I mean, you wouldn't know it. Like, to, to pick out a song on Riot Act, you, you might not think you've listened to it, but maybe you have. 
Uh, I think like if you asked an AI to generate a Pearl Jam song, it would come up with most of the tracks on this album. There's not really anything memorable going on here. And like uh, uh, Pearl Jam, a lot of memorable tracks throughout like the, the 90s, throughout their discography. It's like a band that I enjoy for the most part, but uh, this album, it, it was just so uh, like vanilla, just so bland, except there, there's one song that I made a, a point to uh, send you a text so I wouldn't remember, so sorry to remember the name of it. Um, I think it was I Am Mine, right? I Am Mine. I, I do agree that that's a pretty good song, but yeah, I, I think you're right that they're kind of on a run here of albums where they're clearly not the band they used to be, at least commercially or in, in mainstream appeal. They've definitely fallen off. I mean, they, they're on their, what, third album in five years, and none of them have sold. Uh, or I mean, they, they maybe have gone platinum, but they're not quite the records that people remember this band of when they were sort of the defi- one of the defining artists of the grunge scene in the mm-hmm. late 80s and 90s. So they've definitely got their fan base, though. Uh, people really do like them a lot. Again, I, I feel the same way that you do about this, honestly. It just not a lot sticks out. It's not that it's poorly recorded, but all of it just kind of sounds like a indistinguishable, big, muddy mess of music. It's it's like, not, again, that I Am Mind track is one of the few moments where I feel like it becomes like, something oh, they're, else. They're, they're trying something new here. Like it, it sounds a little bit different from the rest of the stuff they've put on the rest of this album. Yeah, and again, not to say it's bad. Like it's, I'm sure, I'm sure Pearl Jam fans are happy with this record. And if you got to see it live, like that's awesome. Like I was actually kind of surprised when I looked up the tour for this, um, they because they toured on this album. They actually did a show at House of Blues. Uh, so like you know, mid 2003 here in Orlando, Florida, you could have seen them at a tiny ass venue. Hmm. Like this was a, a an arena tour that they were doing, and then the stop in Orlando didn't go to the arena. It went to house of blues i was like damn that must have been a really they must have really popped off there but any rate that's uh oh and uh, are, we, are we gonna judge the album art <laughs> album cover? it's all right it's all right it's, it's okay. like yeah. two little skeletons sitting in a cave they're wearing crowns yeah i, I think it's uh, it's very moody like uh like very orangey like sepia i think it's pretty good it looks very staged too it looks very art school staged like mm. this is part of some kind of exhibit or something so all right, so now we got a big album, real big album to discuss here. Uh, we got Jennifer Lopez with This Is Me Then. So uh, this is her th- only her third album as an artist, which is kind of crazy to think about because um, every album she's made has, has in some way been a really big hit. Uh, this one sold 6 million copies, did very well with Oof. Jenny from the Block. Made I'm glad, all I have. Yeah, this was a this is a big one, and she's basically working with the same producer she's always worked with, at least up until this point. All three of her albums are made by this guy, uh, Corey Rooney, who produces a lot of um, a lot of mainstay pop and R and B. So um, he's a very good producer, uh, kind of like a maybe a more like down to earth Max Martin type. I guess is probably who you would compare him to. Um, and yeah, this is a good, actually a really enjoyable album all around. It's also funny because this is like the height of her being head over heels in love with Ben Affleck. Hmm. Like all of the songs are about how in love she is with him. <laughs> They're all very clear. This is, this is not a, her writing a bunch of different stories for other people or writing about slice of life, life with, you know, another person's relationship. This is all 
I'm Jennifer Lopez, and I am batshit insanely in love with 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 Ben Affleck right now. And just to put everyone in the shoes of those of us who were living through the year 2002, uh, she was in love with Ben Affleck. The rest of us were not. Like Ben Affleck was definitely at a point in his career where everyone's just ready to be like, "Nah, never mind. We've had enough of that guy." But <laughs> yeah, it's gonna come back around. He's just gonna wait it out, and then you know, with within several years' time, we'll be like, "Okay, Ben." You can, go, you can come on back now. We appreciate you again. Well, well, she would feel the same way about it too, because she would end up with Mark Anthony, and then she was with. It wasn't. It, it wasn't actually. It was it wasn't Derek Jeter? It was the other guy. It was fucking uh, Alex Rodriguez. A Rod. Yeah, she ended up with A Rod. The cheater. Yeah, and hey, now she seems to be back with Ben Affleck and very happy there. So you know, hmm. good for her. She's, yeah. she's she's a, she is a huge deal. She is one of the biggest artists in pop music and just like popular culture. So, um, yeah, an actress of several films, including Made in Manhattan. Yeah, absolutely. She did the film Made in Manhattan. <laughs> Wait, that was that might be coming out very very soon. Or was it the <laughs> Wedding Planner? I don't know. There's like a what a three year window. I, I actually, if I've got this right, because it wasn't this month, I'm pretty sure next month, December 2002, is when the film Made in Manhattan comes out. Mm, okay. So we can, uh, we'll, we'll, I guess maybe we'll talk about that. I doubt it, but maybe. <laughs> uh, we, we, should, we should force, like, we'll have a movie night, and we won't tell Wes what we're watching. Tell him we're going to watch this, the spiritual sequel to Reign of Fire, which also has Matthew McConaughey in it. Mm, perfect. <laughs> Except this time, instead of JLo, it's instead of dragons, it's JLo. All right, um, uh, what's up? Uh, album cover, ten out of ten, no notes. Yeah, yeah, just her, just her. That's all you really need to know about it is that she's going to be uh, giving you some rhymes about how much she is into Ben. Okay, uh, George Harrison released his twelfth album mm-hmm. called Brainwashed. You know, you know who George Harrison is right. Yeah. The, the guitarist for the Beatles. Uh, he actually had passed away at the time of the release of this album. So it is a posthumous album. He had, he had passed away. I don't even think, I don't know if we talked about it, but he died, I think December of 2001. So um, this was released after the fact it was recorded by, um, Oh gosh, I forgot the guy's name. Uh, oh, uh, Jeff Lynn. Jeff Lynn is of the band ELO and was a co bandmate of his with the group traveling wheelberries. I, I, didn't listen to this album that much. I gave it a playthrough, you know, start to finish, as I do all the albums, but I didn't really enjoy it all, all that much. Um, people do say that it's kind of a swan song release, that it, it's one of the better albums that he's had, um, and that it's a good way to go out um, as an as an artist. And, and again, there's a lot of interesting guitar work. That's always been his thing. He's he's always had a almost Bob Dylan-esque nasally voice. Um, but he really has the capacity to speak through his guitar more than his actual voice. And that's, I think, what, what really works on this record. So, um, you know, worth giving a listen if, if, if you like kind of classic rock. It's very much in that vein. Um, you've got Three Doors Down. A great releasing. album cover. Like, this, this is really oh, good. Bra- the Brainwashed album cover? Yeah. I like it, too. It's got a really nice color palette. It's that, that rich red with that burst of purple with the guy sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really good. Mm-hmm. And moving on, uh, Three Doors Down, Away From The Sun. Do you know the band Three Doors Down? I do know this band, yes. Yeah, they had that big hit song, Crypt Tonight. Mm-hmm. This was one of those albums when I when I was putting it on the list to talk about. By the way, why why did I put this on the list to talk about? This album sold 8 million copies. Oh, yeah, big hit. Um, th- this album was a massive uh, commercial success. 
I was writing this down thinking, oh man, this album's gonna suck. Like this is going to be a boring record. And I'll tell you, this album totally won me over. Uh, way overachieved and was better than I thought it would be. And again, I'm not saying it's a great record. I'm just saying that I was expecting something like literally like Creed. I mean, neither you know? did the critics. The critics also said this is not a very good album. Yeah, I, 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 I don't. I, I wouldn't say they're wrong. They are critics for a reason. They're they're looking for, you know. Uh, I I think what this this album does is that it is very earnest and down to earth. I think that if you listen to this side by side with the band like Creed, where Creed is so fucking pretentious. The way that they write their songs, they're so, like, they think everything is an epiphany. Like, everything is this profound discovery of thought, right? It's just so up its own ass. And I think the guys in Three Doors Down, they just kind of write simpler songs. Like, they're they're not, they're, they're blue-collar guys. And, um, you know, I think it really does, works well for them on this record where they're just not trying to be bigger than the guys that they really are. Um, and there's a lot of really good, When I'm Gone was a huge hit. Um what the ticket to heaven was another big single like uh here without you i think there's there's a number of genuinely good songs on this album and i would actually totally recommend it i, I think it's i think it's a fun album uh, the only thing i would say is that like kryptonite that big hit single they're known for is really upbeat track they don't really rock that hard on this record most of the tracks here are pretty mid-tempo um it's also not a very long record it's actually kind of the, the tracks themselves aren't never feel too long, and then the album itself doesn't feel long. I think it maybe clocks in at something like thirty minutes. So, um, yeah, this is this is an example of, of of a band overachieving in my mind for sure. Not only in terms of sales, but just the actual thing that they made. Yeah, uh, I mean, you're you're looking at the album cover though, right? It's mediocre. Pretty mediocre. This is not a great album cover. But it's also inoffensive. Yeah, but it's not using eighty percent of the space of the cover. <laughs> well, I think there there's something you could say about like uh, the artistic nature of like using negative space. Uh, they're not doing that. They're just like putting their name on a blank, like black sheet of paper. Like here's the album cover. Yeah, it's almost like that they forgot to make album art. Like, yeah, they're they're not like really going for it, but they're like maybe they know their limitations. They're like, okay, we're not going to go for it because we know we're just going to end up looking like a bunch of pretentious assholes. Yeah. Oh, and another thing that really made me like these guys was when I looked up their Wikipedia page. They actually have a charity that they run. These guys are from Mississippi, and their charity has donated millions and millions of dollars, quite likely more than this band has ever made as a group. They did more in charitable donations to causes. Specifically, they uh, rebuilt something in the neighborhood of, of 50 houses that were destroyed during Hurricane Katrina for families. In Mississippi? Yeah. Um, oh, they, they built uh, Brett Favre, that volleyball stadium? Yeah, this was before. This was before that. This was before that. <laughs> yeah, they actually built the above ground pool for far. <laughs> uh, nothing classier than above but ground. But this pools. was actually in St. Paul, and it is, it is a Minnesota house. During that year, he was in Minnesota. Mm, of course. <laughs> no, no. These these guys like uh, they apparently run a charity that that seems to do a lot of good. It's the, probably the biggest thing on their Wikipedia page, aside from them making kind of generic butt rock music, is that <laughs> they have a really nice charity. <laughs> oh, good for them. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, moving on. Um, Matchbox 20 uh, releases the album More Than You Think You Are. Uh, so uh, this is another really big... Uh, this, this is an artist that was probably bigger prior to this. Yeah, for sure. And they are on this record, uh, notably for with the singer Rob Thomas. The biggest single of anyone associated with this is that one he did with Santana. Mm, smooth. And that wasn't Santana featuring Maxbox 20. I believe that was Santana featuring Rob Thomas. 
So he's the guest. Right. He's the guest vocalist on it. At any rate, like again, this is another album that I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. This kind of won me over. I again, I saw this on the list too, and I was like, oh, another fucking average rock record. I gotta listen to. And I found a number of tracks on here that I really, really enjoyed. I think the big singles on it hold up really well. Songs like Unwell and uh, Bright Lights, All I Need. These are r- really just genuinely good songs. Very well recorded. Rob Thomas has a great voice. Kind of all works. It just, it's, it's, it's genuinely a, a good record. I also think it's funny that like if you were to be like... like po- calling something pop rock is, is about as generic as you can in terms of music. Yeah, it's a bit of a catch-all. But I don't know a band that is more definitively pop rock than Matchbox 20. <laughs> they simultaneously are the most generic thing, yet embody it. They embody gen- generica so well. Now, I was actually dreading uh, listening to this one, and I didn't. Um, but I'm going to add it to my my queue right now, based on your recommendation. I was dreading listening to it because you are someone like you. I think is one of the best albums of the 90s. It's a really, really yes. great record. I would agree um, with that. And this is all, I'm actually looking forward to listening to this one now. But the album art, it, it's not great. Yeah, it's the four guys basically looking like they're in a waiting room at a hospital. You know, it's yeah, it's, and they're they're covering their faces with their hands. Like it, it's definitely like we've used the word pretentious a lot mm-hmm. in this show. But this one, mm, it's almost it's almost like a faith if plus they did one. The mouth, the eyes, and the ears. Would that have been better? Because then they were going. Oh, if they for did the, the see see no evil, hear no evil. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely, absolutely, that would, that would have improved it. I was gonna say it's like in South Park. It's the Faith Plus One album cover. They just <laughs> there did. There is five of them, so that would not have worked. Like like, uh, well, two of them can see no evil, and two of them can hear no yeah, evil. Like, and like it you all like works bookend out. it. You bookend it like the, uh, Rob Thomas, of, who of course is obviously in the middle, um, would be see no evil, and then the other ones like, and then you work your way outwards. Ah. You can do it. Uh, get Rob on the phone. Well, I'll text him. I'll text him yeah. after the show. Mm-hmm. And not producer Rob Thomas. We're talking about musician Rob Thomas. Right. Right. Yeah, got to make a big distinction there. Okay, so that gets us through pop rock. Now we move into the wonderful world of hip hop and R and B, and this this little genre had quite the month. So we'll start off at the top here with Justin Timberlake's "Justified." <laughs> We're so, starting the hip hop mo- the section with Justin Timberlake. It's hip hop and R and B. Okay. It is hip hop okay. and R and B. This is my catch all for both. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's his debut solo record. Obviously, everyone knows probably Justin Timberlake as the guy from NSYNC. Right. Uh, this album's going to sell 10 million copies. It's going to sell a fuck ton. It's going to have uh, some big singles on it. Crimea River, Rock Your Body, the opening track, Senorita. Um, it's pr- production duties on this album are, are split between Neptunes and Timbaland. So he's got basically the two biggest American producers going at this time, making his record. And if you were to compare it to, again, like, um, NSYNC mostly works with this that guy, Max Martin, that Swedish producer who makes basically dance pop. These producers make R&B and hip-hop. So as a result, this album is a much funkier sound to it. And you can tell he's doing his best imitation of Usher and maybe trying to mix in a little bit of Michael Jackson. Um, And there is a a lot of, like, multi-tracking of his voice. You hear his voice looped over itself a ton it's like at times there's like seven justin timberlakes singing at you um so it's a bit overproduced in that regard honestly i don't like this record i really i just i've never liked justin timberlake as a as a singer i think he's it's 
I get the appeal of him, and I understand why he was like the biggest guy to come out of this scene. But like, I don't know. He's really not that great. His voice isn't like anything special. Compared again, compared to the the guys he's aping, like Usher. Like Usher's an incredible R and B musician. Um, obviously Michael Jackson's the king of pop. Like he has a lot. He's 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 aspiring to be. Eh, I don't know. Ten million records. I'm the outlier. Like this this thing was a huge hit. Everyone knows who this guy is. Yeah, I mean it's it's never really appealed to me either. But then I don't think it was ever like meant to appeal to, you know, dudes in their twenties. So fair point. But the, um, you know, the the album cover, it's okay. You know what? I'll, I'll give it that. It's actually a pretty good album cover. I think it's a very nice picture of him. Sick leather jacket he has. Is he on the moon? Where is he on? What is this that he's on top of? He might be. He might be on the moon. Des yeah. doesn't like the album cover. She's making a face. Yeah, he's pretty pale. Isn't I don't he? know. It's, it's not, uh, it not the reads, most offensive thing. It reads douche. I mean... I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment. <laughs> I think he's kind of a douche. Right. <laughs> um, he's that guy at the bar that buys you the drink even though you don't want it, and then is like, why aren't you giving me your number? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to you, and I didn't ask for this, so you can just take your shot back and leave me the fuck alone. And you shouldn't accept sir. drinks from strangers. Well, depending on who you're with. Hmm. That was a Liz Lemon There was quote. one time I was um, at the um, at a bar with uh, Hawaiian Ashley. Like went club, it, like technically went to a nightclub that was at City Walk with a bunch of people from Universal, and um, she and I were kind of like dancing on each other, just goofing around, being stupid. And two men offered to buy us shots, and I was like, "I'm good." And Ashley was like, "We'll take it." And so she's, and I was like, actually, I don't <laughs> she know. took she, both of the shots. <laughs> no, she made me take the other one. But yeah, she was like, no, 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 this is free liquor. You don't turn down free liquor. I'm like, we don't know these people. She's like, it's fine. And so this is the most arousing story that's ever been told in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we took the shots, and then she was like, thanks so much, and then pulls me away. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how this works. And she's like, yes, don't question it. <laughs> she's just grifting for drinks. <laughs> Hey, if yeah, someone's going to give away free drinks, you know, why not take them? Mm. Yeah. I was going to say in, in 30 Rock. the last time I took alcohol from a stranger. Yeah. It, it, there's this great moment in 30 Rock where that happens with Liz Lemon, and she's like, I don't want a shot. Can you just buy me some... Uh, oh, she's like, can you just buy me some mozzarella sticks? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, moving on, we got Roots Phrenology. Roots is like a hip-hop collective. Uh, like a... They, kind of like in the conscious hip-hop space. It's kind of a pretentious term for it, but that's what they do. Um, it is a band that features Questlove as co-producer and drummer. Um, it's really good. It's it's, a, it's all over the place. It's a very interesting, eclectic mix of modern and classic hip-hop, with just sort of some unexpected turns along the way. I think it's a, it's a really good record. Tracks like The Seed 2.0 and Break You Off are really good. Um, yeah, like... I don't know. It also has a lot of guest stars. So what carries the album is the fact that like every other track's got a guest star, like Jill Scott, Music Soul Child, Talib Kweli, Nelly Furtado. Really good roster on it. I, I really enjoy this record. I think it's pretty good. And the cover art, pretty good as well. Kind of reflects that eclectic style you're talking about. Yeah. Um, oh, and uh, do you know what phrenology is? It's kind of a weird term. No. It is the study of the shape of the skull. It's like a weird oh, pseudoscience. Geez. 
It's supposed to be yeah, like very specific. Yeah, like it's believed that you can determine whether or not someone's intelligent based based on the way that their skull is shaped. I don't know oh. why, but yeah. oh, there's like some weird eugenic shit going on there. Yeah. All right, moving on. Another very high-profile musician, Snoop Dogg, has his album come out. Paid the cost to be the boss. Um, I think it's kind of just just to to read who all is involved in this. As a producer, you've got Neptunes again. High Tech, Just Blaze, and DJ Premier, who are four of the biggest names in yeah. production. You've got Jay-Z, Nate Dogg, Redman, Warren G, and Ludacris as just some of the guests. I don't know. I mean, the album's... It's, it's okay. I didn't I honestly didn't enjoy it all that much. <laughs> all these great names, it's fine. Yeah, I honestly think that like Snoop Dogg is, is just like... His style kind of wears on you after a while. Mm. And it doesn't help that, I kid you not, this is... 80 minutes long and 20 tracks how many skits though um i don't even think that many as i recall listening through it there might have been one or two shorter little skits in there but no these are like kind of long songs i mean it's it's not all bad there actually are, are a handful of good tracks on there that it's okay but you know especially when there there's one where it's essentially a cover of an eric b and rakim track called paid in full uh which i really enjoyed uh, i wasn't expecting it at all but um, hearing him do someone else's music kind of made me appreciate him a little bit more because he is so his own thing. You know, Snoop Dogg is so into the whole, like, um, you know, like Southern California, like weed, money, women, that kind of thing. Like that's, and that's all he ever raps about. Like you're not, don't expect anything different from that. Um, another kind of average record, Buster Rhymes. Buster Rhymes releases uh, "It Ain't Safe No More." I honestly, just like don't even want to talk about this record. It's it's it should be better than it is when you consider again. Neptunes are back or producing this album too. Jay Dilla, Megahertz, Swiss Beats. Like it's again 72 minutes long. I just I wanted it so badly to end as I was listening to it. It, just, it took four <laughs> fucking ever. This is not the first time you've talked shit about Buster Rhymes on this podcast. Yeah. Oh, and we didn't talk about the album art. Um, Snoop Dogg's record cover is great. I think it's really cool. Just a just a stark black and white photo of him. Yeah, it's pretty good. And Busta's is like, I don't know. I don't really think it's yeah. particularly nah. great. And next up, uh, an album, again, another album where I thought this was going to be the worst, and I listened to it a ton. Uh, Jaw Rule's The Last Temptation. Uh, Jaw Rule, this is fourth record. If, if you don't know who Jaw Rule is, basically he sort of sounds like DMX and is trying to look like Tupac. Um, I think... This album, though, is he's not even that great of an MC, but just in terms of making really catchy rhymes and putting them over very, you know, catchy melodic beats, he did a great job. Um, of all people, his opening track has Bobby Brown on it. Like, it's a bold move to have Bobby Brown be like your lead <laughs> guest star, <laughs> but he did. And then after that, he has this track called Mesmerize with Ashanti, and it's fucking amazing. It's one of the best songs of the month. Um, I don't know. I, I just I, I just dug this record. Um, I, I think I think it's pretty good. Uh, again, Ja Rule, not the greatest vocalist, and yeah, he very much you would is so easy to confuse him with DMX. But honestly, this this album does have some genuinely good singles. So and he would, uh, he like hired a photographer to do this cover art. Like this is like legit. It's following oh, yeah. the rules of threes. Everything's framed really well. Mm-hmm. 
Well, he also has like, do you see that that necklace that he's wearing? That's called the Jesus piece. If you mm-hmm. have a, a portrait of, of of Jesus Christ, like on on that, so he's wearing two Jesus pieces, <laughs> which is just like a, an interesting move. It's really something only like the hardest of thugs do. <laughs> and it's just Jaro letting you know what a tough guy he is. Um, we'll move on. We'll move on though. Um, Talib Kweli released an album called Quality. This is actually is it's considered his debut record, but he already had an album come out with Black Star, which is a him and Moss Def making a record with uh, producer High Tech. Really good record. I like this a lot. I think it's a really good album. Um, he simultaneously gets to be sort of uh, he can walk both lines. He can be like a, the thuggish side of hip-hop while also being the conscious hip-hop side. Like we just saw, he was on the Roots record. Um, very, very good MC. Very good wordplay. Um, also, this is uh, obviously like Jay-Z's Blueprint was a much bigger release that featured production by Kanye West, but Kanye West actually produces three different tracks on this album. And in 2003, Kanye West's first tour was supporting Talib Kweli. So we would not have him as a solo artist if not for his work on this record. Um, so Get By, Gorilla Monsoon Rap, and Good To You are, are great tracks. I, I, I just thought this was a really, really good record all around. And yeah, Kanye's production, especially in this era, is remarkable it's really really good um you know he is obviously a nightmare of a human being um but as a producer and especially in the early 2000s he was just absolutely crushing it um i don't see any cover right so let's keep moving yeah it's just it's just a picture of him wearing some some white gear like nothing special um missy elliott's under construction comes out this is her fourth record and missy elliott is like one of the best mcs like just flat out one of the best uh with wordplay uh her cadence her delivery her rhymes er everything just sounds great on her records she is again working exclusively with timbaland as she has for her past few records like she just just works with timbaland um so this whole album's just got a great great vibe to it again it's that kind of janky r&b sound uh, she brings in a lot of heavy hitters too. She's got Method Man, Ludacris, Jay Z, and Beyonce are all on this record. Diverse selection of music and three million sold. They did really fucking good. And the album cover, solid. Yeah, just just her uh, wearing like some some really hype clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, moving on to how, how how are we doing on time? How long have we been going? I feel like we've been about going thirty minutes. Oh my god. All right, well we'll try to get through these last, you know, like eight-ish records. Uh, he asked how long we've been recording and I told him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Des, you're, you're in for a treat. This is going to be a marathon. <laughs> She's walking away. <laughs> oh, great. All right, so into punk then. Um so some 41, does this look infected? You like some 41? Yeah, they're okay. Mhm. Kind of like this the, is their... that, that skate rock sound. Yeah, yeah. So this is the, this is only their second album. Um they had basically had one big album before that that was their breakout record. I actually like this one. I think it's pretty good. Got track Hellsong, Over My Head, Still Waiting. Um, very nice that this one is a brisk 30 minutes. Mm. And it also goes pretty hard. There is This is unapologetically a punk record akin to, like, compared to something like Good Charlotte, which we were just like, this is such a mainstream, radio-friendly pop record. Uh, these guys are not doing that at all. They're... If anything, they sound like No Effects. This sounds like a lot like a younger version of No Effects. Um, moving on, we have minus album the bear. cover's okay. Oh yes, we do need to do the album cover. It's gross album, but it's fitting for what they're doing. Yeah. 
You got Minus the Bear, Highly Refined Pirates. Now you've talked about them before. I recognize his name. Yeah, uh, Minus the Bear had an EP come out earlier in the year. And last month, the band Botch released their final EP as a group. Uh, noteworthy because the guitarist in that band, his name's Dave Cudson, is the guitarist in this group. Um, I absolutely love this record. It's, it's very, like, as far as it goes, it's sort of an indie rock record with a lot of emo influence, but not emo in, like, the sort of, like, sad, noodly guitar work kind of way. They have their own vibe here that they're going for, and it's so much, like, I don't know, so much smoother, so much cooler. Um, I love this record. I, again, again, they swap the kind of relationship drama for more of, like, a life of um, hedonism. You know, all their songs are about, like, partying and the, I'm sure, the decadent world of yacht ownership <laughs> you know it's it's they, they they're singing about a lifestyle they don't live which I, I think makes it all the more funny um but yeah i actually I, I really do genuinely love this record one of the ones i was listening to like at the time you know listened to this record a bunch i i could name some song like the song titles are noticeably weird like if you're looking at the, the track list with things like monkey knife fight or absinthe party at the fly warehouse or spritz spritz or we're not a football team this is a mad lib yeah yeah they have they're known for silly like song titles but they don't relate to what the songs are about at all like they're literally one of the songs is like i lost all my money at the cockfights (laughs) (laughs) you've mentioned that before that sounds familiar yeah so honestly this album slays through and through like every track on here is so so good there's one track that's like an interlude that's 45 seconds every other song on here is amazing so i would absolutely this, you know i'll get ahead of it now this is probably the album of the month in my mind um you also have against me against me is a punk band from gainesville um they release a three track ep called disco before the breakdown normally we don't we didn't talk about a three track ep but this is a band again i was listening to at the time love this group so much and i think disco before the breakdown maybe they're their best song as a group. Love it. Moving into Electronic and Ambient, Godspeed You Black Emperor released Yankee UXO. They're a Canadian post-rock group. They actually produced this album with Steve Albini, which if you don't know who that is, I mean, it doesn't really know that much, but he has a very um, ev- evocative way. He, he's, he's, a, he's just a really good producer, and he found a way to take this band that is known for making these very long-winded, sprawling tracks that are also very like lo-fi and muddy, and then making them sound much more clear, uh, really bringing forward the production. So um, I love it. Again, it's a post-rock album, so it is, I kid you not, it's, eight, it's over 80 minutes long, and it's five songs, and it's all instrumentals. So you kind of have to strap in for that. They use a mixture of like acoustic and electric guitar, bass, drums, cello, violin, it's, it's like a nine-piece group. So I, I love it. I think it's really good. They have a really nice vibe to them. Also, weirdly enough, like everything about them is like very conspiratorial. Like even the, the name that they use and their artwork itself, it's all seemingly like they're uncovering some kind of mystery because and I guess the fact that there are no lyrics leads you to kind of draw your own conclusion about what it's about. So I would recommend it. It's very, very good. Uh, and the last of the electronic records we'll talk about is Loskill. That's spelled L-O-S-C-I-L. And the album title is Submers. This is like deep ambient techno. Um, I absolutely love it. I really love this record so much. It is such a chill record. It's interesting. The, the, I guess the whole like shtick, like the thing about this record is that all of the tracks are named after submarines, like famous submarines in history. 
Um, and I guess it's done because it's trying to evoke what it's like to be underwater. I guess it's all very like aquatic, ambient, chill music, but also at the same time, it's very, um, I don't know, it's kind of claustrophobic. And it, like, I couldn't imagine a more just like uncomfortable place to be than in like a steel can a thousand feet underwater, you know, like, but in a way, this is a very peaceful, ambient take on something like that. So totally recommend it. Uh, and okay, moving into metal, we've got like six records here. We'll get through them pretty quick though. Uh, System of a Down. System of a Down released Steal This Album just last year. They came out with Toxicity. I don't know. This album's not as heavy as that one, but it's still got some fun tunes like um, Intervision, Boom, what is it, IEA. Like, it's it's okay. Sold about a million copies. It's a pretty big record. Opeth? And you, and you know what? Oh, what's this that? album, this album art, pretty nostalgic. <laughs> yeah. Just just the CD, just like a blank CDR that says Steal This Record. Yeah. It looks like it's written in Sharpie. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Opeth released Deliverance. So if you, I don't even know if you remember, but like last year, Opeth released an album called Blackwater Park. A lot of people considered it the best metal album of the year. I was a naysayer. That was not the best metal album of the year. I think it's fine, but I think that they're too much of a prog band to really, really pull off the heavier stuff that they're trying to do. And this album is just not as cohesive, and I just don't think it sounds good. The guitars are really like back in the mix, which is surprising. Typically, the guitar is the loudest thing in metal, and eh, I don't know. I didn't really like it. So moving on, Trapped released their self-titled record. Uh, I hate this band. They're really bad. <laughs> oh, they, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have that song Headstrong, which is just sort of like the most generic bro tune ever. Like, it's, it's this band sucks. Like, oh, I, sure. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, that song is no good. There are a lot of bands that I'll put up, a, I'll, I'll, I'll stick up for when people trash them. This like is Three Doors Down. Yeah, Three Doors Down. I was just saying how Three Doors Down actually made a pretty solid record. This is not. This is a bad band, and I don't like them. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? And the album art? Yeah. Mm. Oh, a, a guy mowing a lawn. That's out of focus. To oh, make it artistic. Yeah, of course. Yeah, guy mowing a lawn out of focus. That's exactly it. That's what's going <laughs> to. So that's how you sell your album. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, next, we've got the band Bathory uh, released an album called Nordland One. Um, so this is a band that's actually in the 80s. They were very influential in sort of creating black metal as a kind of music. And this is much sillier. Um, the band now consists of one guy, essentially. Um, and he sort of produces everything on it. And I don't know. It's it's good. It's supposed to be more of like this Viking metal stuff, but a lot of it just kind of gets into like what you call dungeon synth. So it all sounds like really cheesy Dungeons and Dragons music, I guess. Um, I think there's a couple of good songs though. Um, there's an instrumental, like an acoustic instrumental called uh, "Ring of Gold," which kind of does feel very Lord of the Ringsy. And uh, the last couple tracks, "Broken Swords" and "Great Halls," they actually kind of get going with it that actually is a little harder so i enjoy it i actually I mean, that part is okay i think as a whole they've made like 80 percent of a record that sucks and then you know 20 percent where it actually gets going and does something interesting and i like that um you got one of the better metal albums of the year i'm not gonna lie a band called bloodbath they released resurrection through carnage oh and oh sorry Hardcore. we're gonna talk about album art we should have talked about album art a minute ago Bathory's, uh, Bathory's Nordland Eye, great album art. 
very. I very couldn't nice. find it on here. It's like this. Uh, you can you can find it. No. It's like this uh, kind of fantasy-looking thing. It looks like it would be the cover of like a D&D uh, compendium or something. Mm. Not bad. But yeah, okay, so onto the band uh, Bloodbath, Resurrection Through Carnage. Again, I love this record. I think oh, here's, is... here's Bathory. Yeah, that's all right. But Bloodbath, uh, Resurrection Through, through Carnage. That's yeah. another, this is another good album art. Oh, yeah, this one's pretty grisly, too. It's kind of nasty. It's got, like, the, the four different faces mm-hmm. on all the sides of the record. I believe it's supposed to be the four band members. Um, but, yeah, this is actually kind of a super group. It consists of a bunch of other guys from the Swedish death metal scene. Um, and this one, it's sort of like if you took... To be very niche, just forgive me for going niche on this, but it's like it's sort of like if you took the, the mid-'80s Swedish death metal sound but then sort of recorded it as though you were making like tracks from the New York scene in the nineties. Um, it's this perfect melding of the sounds where you get this really like kind of nasty and gritty New York death metal songs, but played through the style of classic death metal. Um, I love it. The guitar tone is so rotten. This is one of the best guitar tones you're ever going to hear on a record. It's so like, just like, crunchy and loud and just sort of takes over the tracks. You really don't hear guitar tones like this. Most people want more melody to come through in theirs, and they're just using it as a means of just making this just chaotic wall of distortion. Absolutely love it. It's a great, great record. Um, and then the last album we're going to talk about is Amanomarts versus The World. They're like a... They're all, again, this is the third band in a row, I believe, we're talking about from Sweden. Uh, including oh, Four of these bands are from fucking Sweden. Sweden went absolutely bonkers this year. Or this this month, <laughs> but Amon Amarth versus the world. Um, this is yeah. This is again another melodic death metal record. It's it's got kind of a chunkier sound to it, and then the drummer is actually going. The drummer is really really nice on this this record. Um, it's it's all in all like it's it's not that great of a record. I think when they do the mid tempo stuff, especially, they kind of lose me. I think I just generally gravitate more towards like heavier, faster, louder. Um, but all in all, a pretty pretty good record. Did you the look al- at the, the album art? Uh, it's okay. It's it's also like another like fantasy style, like this this barbarian <laughs> guy with a sword and shield, and he's like gonna fight the moon or something. But it is <laughs> yeah. like it, it does look like it was drawn by someone who draws like good graphic art for a living, uh, like for for graphic novels or comics or something. So it's it looks like it's professionally done. It is a little bit like. I don't know, maybe a little bit uh, uh, textbook, like from a, from a drawing pad. Like, okay, we have this in this corner and this in that corner. And then in the opposing corners, you have one like really intense color and the other corner, you have a different intense color. So, you know, I think it's uh, uh, an interesting, like, hey, here's some, some fantasy art. It was pretty cool, but mm-hmm. it's not like, uh, I don't know, maybe trying a little too much to be edgy, but still like having a really safe layout. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, I think it's it's what you would expect from this band. A lot mm. of their album art looks like it came from the cover of like a pulp fantasy novel, mm. you know. So not not you know not a barn burner, not a, not a truly great record, but a fun enough one. And I think Amon Amarth fans especially like this record. So yeah, so actually a surprisingly busy month for music. I remember earlier yeah. on I was like, eh, I don't really want to listen to any of this, and then I actually started listening to it, and I found some some really good records. Nice, very yeah. good. Okay, oof. so we're, we're done with that. That is in the bag, and we're gone. That was almost it was 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we made it. We did that's it. Our, yeah, that's our longest yet. Oh, my God. So <laughs> No, I think one time we went for an hour. <laughs> shit. 
All right, I gotta I gotta rein it in. Well, good good news. Next month there's virtually no albums to talk about. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, I guess we can probably move on to the the films. Hell yeah. About movies. Uh, you want to talk about I Spy? It's a movie that I, made sixty million dollars. It did, yeah. Um, on a budget though of seventy. Oh, that's not great. I actually I don't know what this movie is. I believe it's isn't it one that has um. Oh God, uh, why can't I think of his name? Isn't it, is it Axel Foley? <laughs> He's in no, it. I don't know. Maybe. Um, no, come on. What is his name? Why can't we think of it? Wesley Snipes? No. Oh, Eddie Murphy. I think this is an Eddie Murphy and... Um, gosh, I, why don't we just look up the movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's just keep The guessing. way we're going. <laughs> yeah, right? Why are we doing this to ourselves? Owen Wilson, that's right. This is another one of those films where they're trying to team up Owen Wilson with people and it doesn't really work. Oh, sure. I didn't okay. watch this movie, so maybe it does. <laughs> like, hey, who else can we team up Owen Wilson with since you know we had such great success with Shanghai Noon and Shanghai Nights? But it turns out that... like. Uh, Eddie Murphy doesn't have the the same sort of uh, uh, opposite energy that's still with still a lot of chemistry that Jackie Chan does. Yeah, and Eddie Murphy has also kind of fallen off a little bit. He's mm. pretty, maybe not the star he used to be. Mm. Considering like during the eighties, he was like the king of the eighties. He was like yeah, as big as a star can be. It's not coming to America anymore. Yeah, but this was made by uh, Betty Thomas, who also made Doctor Doolittle in Twenty Eight Days. So. She's worked with um, worked with Eddie Murphy before. So. Mm. I didn't, again, I didn't have shit to say about it. I didn't really think it was particularly interesting. There was Oop. enough movies to watch this month that I was like, I don't care about that. Yeah. All right, moving on. So almost a full two months before Christmas, we get the Santa Claus 2. That we do, yes. Uh, we get the Santa Claus 2, or a sequel to, I believe it was like in 96. It's been a while since the first Santa Claus movie. Oh, was it really that long? Yeah, it had, it had been a while. So this is um, helmed by a guy named Michael Lembeck, who, this is actually his feature film debut as a director, oh. but he's actually like an award-winning sitcom director. He's known for working on Mad About You, Friends, Two Guys and a Girl. He's got tons, hundreds and hundreds of episodes of sitcom television he's produced. So I think that that's really his background. Hmm. Um, did you watch this movie? No, no, no. I actually did. I, I did watch this movie. This probably would have been better to save for December when you're more in the spirit. Right. But I was like, eh, whatever. I'll watch it. Cause, um, and, and my takeaway, honestly, is that it's pretty good. It's actually pretty I good. Say, you know, it's, it's definitely more like seasonally fitting December, but it's not like, because if I remember correctly, the first one, like uh, Tim Allen becomes Santa Claus by happenstance because like, uh, whoever is, is Santa at the time falls off a roof. He puts on the suit, and if you put on the suit, you become Santa. And like, he he doesn't actually start turning into you know a, an overweight elderly man until like it it starts to become more like seasonally Christmas. And if, if I can understand like the lore of the Santa Claus film franchise correctly, I uh, you don't actually like become the stereotypical like Santa figure until. Christmas season, and then like once Christmas is over, you kind of like return to your normal life. I think that's how it's supposed to be. I think the further away you are from the pole, the less of an, the less you look like him. Oh, interesting. I think is what they're going for, uh, because that's what sort of happens as he. The premise is that there is apparently something in the bylaws of the Santa bullshit that says that uh, you have to, within a certain time frame, marry a woman. You can't have Santa Claus without Mrs. Claus. 
Um, and you can't which, be gay, apparently. That yeah, apparently no, no none of that, none of that uh, ass grabbery is, is permitted <laughs> <laughs> in the Santa no, no. world. Living in a cold environment at a B and B with a bunch of small creatures is a, a straight's only profession. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it is. so that's basically what's what's supposed to happen to him is that he now is tasked with this thing of needing to go find a wife, and his son, uh, which he had from the previous marriage that we mm-hmm. see in the first film, which just didn't work out. Um, now he basically has to like solve some problems with his son because his son is now acting out because his dad's not really around anymore. And his dad also looks like a completely different person now that he's become Santa Claus. <laughs> right? Um, so in doing so, the hard-ass principal that is looking after him, he kind of has to win her over too. And she, you know, it's a it's a happy little Disney film. They end up, she ends up being the one that, you know, falls in love with him and they get married and fulfills the thing. And that, you know, the the generic predictable nature of the plot is not what makes this actually a good movie um i think what does make this a good movie though is a couple things i think the vibe of it is very spy kids i think that this feels in a lot of ways like a spy kids movie and if you remember if any of the listener remembers us talking about spy kids i talked it up quite a bit because i think it's very good non-condescending family film. I think it's one that's got a lot of humor for kids and adults and works well. And there's also just kind of like a snappy way to it. You know, it's just it's just generally quirky and witty and it's got some charm to it. I also think Tim Allen actually kind of works as a as like a you know, star of film. Like he's I enjoy watching him on screen. Some people may not like Tim Allen. I think mileage will certainly vary based on whether or not you like Tim Allen as an actor. Um, if you don't like him, you're probably going to hate this movie. I think he's got a lot of charm. And he, he does this really well. He also, by the way, is actually playing a dual role because he's the villain in it, too. Hmm. Because what happens is they... Um, ha- in the event that Santa Claus needs to leave, they have this robot Santa that basically is just him and like a it's it's Tim Allen the actor in the stupid robot suit pretending to be the robot right so it's a dual role he's playing in this movie and that santa actually ends up being kind of a fascist oh, and, shit. <laughs> like like the Futurama santabot yeah basically that's a really good comparison he sort of ends up being like santabot where he wants to take like he has all of these um asinine draconian rules that he wants to make the elves live under okay yeah, it's also <laughs> stupid. And then at the end, like he, the the real Santa Claus, Tim Allen, has to come back and turn him off, basically to get control back. <laughs> Again, the plot itself, as I described, it, the movie sounds happening. horrible. <laughs> it sounds horrible when I'm describing what this movie's actually about. It's I mean, genuinely I th- I think, fun, though. I think that could be like the full movie, like some sort of like elf revolution that yeah. has to happen to overthrow the the fascistic uh, overlord Kringle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I also think that um, Elizabeth Mitchell, who portrays the principal, uh, kind of nails the role. She does very good. She 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 makes this relationship, this budding relationship, seem real. Um, so yeah, all in all, it's a solid film. Uh, cost sixty five to make, and it, it banked one hundred seventy. So way before the season, but also you know, they it got its money. Um, where do we want to go next? Uh, Femme Fatale, did you watch that one? <laughs> I actually did. I did watch this one. What would you think? 
Uh, so it's a Brian De Palma film. So Brian De Palma has made things like Scarface and Carlito's Way. More recently, though, he's the guy that made Mission to Mars. Remember that nonsense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he made Mission to Mars. And that he also good. made... Yeah, he made Snake Eyes as well, which, you know, I'll stop those about for. That was a fine movie. Hmm. Uh, so this is a strange one. This is like a neo-noir erotic thriller. Um, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely a weird movie, and it's fun in how weird it is, but I could totally understand people hating this movie, like, to its core, thinking this is just like, why the fuck did I just watch this? Um, it's It's sort of like... Do you by any chance remember the movie Mulholland Drive? Yeah. The David Lynch film? Believe mm-hmm. it or not, that's the closest comparison to this movie. Okay. It is very much a what is real and what is not real. Some of it is sort of a dream sequence, I guess you could say. It's it's a fan in a lot of ways this entire movie is just sort of a fantasy constructed by one of the characters. Um and it's really just really strange. And you can't say it's a bad movie because Brian De Palma is a very like talented director. He doesn't make quote unquote schlock bad movies. It's just this movie is just so insane that it's hard to take any of it seriously. Oh, and the fact that your main character is Rebecca Romaine Stamos, and you know, like she's okay, I guess, but like this is not, you know, she this is a hard carry she has to do in this movie. She is like ninety percent of this movie is her, and there's just like. It's all so weird, and there's not a lot. She doesn't really do a good job as the main character in it, and I don't think anyone really could. It's a very weird. It's a hard, hard role to fill. So, it I goes don't know. from goes from Mystique to yeah, a Brian De Palma film. Mm-hmm. But but like and, saying, like he doesn't uh, he he always has usually interesting projects like. Um, there's yeah. there's not much in his filmography that's like oh no that was that was total trash or you know this is just cashing in here what was he doing with this one um kind of like an under the radar director that you don't think of like the, this pantheon of Brian De Palma films kind of like in the same way like Peter Weir you might be able to name a few Peter Weir films but when you like look at his actual filmography you're like oh yeah these are all these are all really solid movies yeah, yeah, and the same way that, like, Pe- yeah, Peter Weir doesn't make a cash in film. He doesn't, mm. you know, he's very deliberate about the projects he makes. And and again, same same deal here. Like, Brian De Palma had a vision for this movie, and it just, like, I don't know, whether or not it succeeds is, is up to the viewer. Uh, critically, they'll, they'll tell you it does not succeed. Oh, no. <laughs> um, that said, though, this is a cult, quote-unquote cult film. Like, this is the very, like, definition of a cult film. There are a handful of devotees that claim this is, like, an amazing movie. And again, I can see why. It's just so silly at times, and it's so weird and unpredictable. Like, you really don't know where this movie is going. And, like, I watched this for, like, a movie night with some friends, and everybody, like, this was the kind of movie where, like, everybody needed to talk about how they hated it. It wasn't, like, the sort of thing where they were like, I didn't like it, I'm gonna move on with my life. It's like, no, I need to explain to you in all the ways this movie bothered me. <laughs> you know, it's one, it, it certainly elicits a reaction, you know? And I think that says a lot. Like, it's easy to make a bad movie. It's difficult to make an entertaining movie. And I think that, that this movie is is an entertaining bad movie. Kind of in the way that, uh, like, fear.com, like, no, we, we need to talk about this bit by bit <laughs> fear.com is actually kind of a perfect comparison a movie that's just so insanely weird that and lovable again it's fear.com versus ghost ship ghost ship is just <laughs> bad and boring fear.com is delightfully bad <laughs> 
So, and, and again, also, again, I remind you, this is supposed to be a quote-unquote, like, erotic thriller. I have never felt so uncomfortable with <laughs> this, the quote-unquote, like, sexy part of it. It just doesn't work. It's just not, oh, man, this movie. Yeah, it's... You know, I don't know. I, I'd still recommend people watch it, though. It's, it's Movie it's, of the it's, month. It's a strange one. It's a strange one, certainly. Um, next, I have the film Eight Mile. Is that what you have? Uh, I, I do have a Santa versus the Snowman. I looked really hard Another for Santa. Santa movie? Yeah, but I could not find Santa versus the Snowman. Um, I need to see this movie. If anyone knows how I can watch it, <laughs> what is it? What is that? Uh, it's Santa, and he fights like a Frosty the Snowman, like invades the North Pole or something. It's animated. What is this really? movie? Yeah, it's wild. Uh, I read the the premise, and I was like, I I need to, I need to watch this right now. Are you reading yeah. it? I'm looking at the artwork here for it, and it looks very uh, like CG for kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely like a children's movie. It's not like we're not talking about like a slasher or anything. It's which makes it more appealing. Like it's not some sort of like schlocky Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey kind of shit. No, uh-huh. but but anyway, Eight Mile. All right. All right. Well, an actual good movie, Eight Mile. This yeah, yeah. Um, who, who directed this one? Do you have it written down? Curtis Hansen, the guy that made L.A. Confidential. Okay. Okay. Uh, again, like that's uh, L.A. Confidential is an incredibly good movie. So, um, it's and uh, again, yeah, starring starring Eminem. Yeah. Sort of a, like a biopic. In a lot of ways, yeah, it's semi-autobiographical. <laughs> it covers a lot of his uh, what it was like, basically growing up poor mm. um, in Detroit, trying to start a career as a rapper in a predominantly, you know, like black culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like I think this movie like way overachieves. This movie is like way better than it has any right to be. And this actually may be one of the best, like, you know, like soundtrack movies I've ever seen. Like yeah. I, hard. Like this is also Eminem's only acting performance. Mm. He does not act other than this. Like it's kind of, kind of, and, and as I understand, in his interviews, he said that he hated, he hated acting. He just didn't like acting. After he did it for this movie, he's like, I'm not doing that again. Um, which is kind of a loss. He, his performance is great in this. I thought he was fantastic. He doesn't, you, you know, you're not looking at the. This isn't like someone who's trying to also glamorize himself. This is a movie of watching a guy just get beat the fuck down for mm-hmm. like two hours straight. Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of the the really great things about the movie is like you keep on waiting for that 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 moment of catharsis where he's actually going to do the thing that everyone says that he's really good at doing, and then when you finally get that, it's like this really uh, uh, fulfilling moment. Where like, okay, good, now he's finally like achieving the thing he keeps on saying he wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. Which is of and course he- like the the rap battle at the end. Yeah, and the, and even then it concludes with him basically going back to work at the the auto factory mm-hmm. like this isn't you're not watching him be like take the stage to thundering applause to be like and now i'm famous right it's sort of right. like he's still anonymous but it kind of like leaves you at the end like okay now the 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 sort of journey continues now that he now he's like taken uh like a, a first major step but you know there's still there's still steps to continue taking on that journey yeah um, I also like a lot of the performances in it. You know, you've got 
um, some even smaller performances like Michael Shannon as the deadbeat mm-hmm. boyfriend yeah. and Brittany Murphy is, is great in this mm-hmm. as this, this sort of love interest, but someone who's also just sort of trying to escape, just trying to find her way out of this, this mess. Yeah. And I think one of the, the interesting things about the relationships in this movie is it does a, it does a good job of uh, keeping you guessing or maintaining this tension of like who's actually trying to help each other out here and who's just like using each other to as a, like a sort of step stool to uh get out get to the next step of their life and you know there there are some some twists and turns some double crosses that will happen throughout mm-hmm. the movie um but but yet yeah, it, it was uh uh, sort of like him coming to the realization like who his real friends actually are uh, is one of the, the big points of his character growth. Yeah, yeah. And again, like shout out some of the great performances like Mackay Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. who is the one that hosts the battles and mm-hmm. is, is sort of the one that sees his talent and is like trying to push him along and make him, you know, get out there and do it. And then and his, uh, his and the, entire crew is fun. Oh yeah, they're, they're all buddies. pretty fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then, yeah, also uh, Anthony Mackie is, like, the the rival MC. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a very just good cast. All The only one that, I mean, Kim Basinger is great, and I, I kind of like her in it, but she also, at times, is the only one that really feels like she sticks out a little bit. Like, it's just, she doesn't fit the strung-out mother role hmm. that well. But, I mean, she's still doing a good job at, at, in the performance. It's just, it's one of those things where uh, it's... She doesn't just just always just doesn't seem to fit the scene. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and again, just like this movie looks great, like the grime and grit of Detroit um, is very apparent. You know, you, you really do feel his his like you you feel like you've lived in that life having watched this movie. It's great. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, moving on. I have a half past dead. Oh, did you watch that one? I did watch that one, yeah. I didn't so, watch it. Ha- believe it or not, so uh, Eminem wasn't the only uh, rapper to make a soundtrack album and movie in the same month. Ja Rule did the same. Okay. So Ja Rule is in this... Oh, but uh, number... We keep skipping ahead. Numbers. So 8 Mile cost $40 million to make, and it made 240 in the box office. So huge one. I'm sure he was getting lots of phone calls after that, like, hey, why don't we make another movie? Yeah, I mean, the soundtrack, and keep in mind, he had already had, um, oh gosh, what was the album that came out? The Eminem Show came out this year, mm, if, mm-hmm. I, if I'm not mistaken. I think it came out in May, and that sold like 25 million copies. So the soundtrack sold 3 million copies. So just an absolutely insane month of album sales as well for Eminem. At any rate, I, I jumped back to get, to get back on track. Uh, Half Past Dead, which is uh, a movie made by a guy named Don Michael Paul. Uh, his debut feature film, and I think his only feature film, everything he makes after this is direct-to-video. Oh, shit. Uh, so that's the caliber of film we're looking at here. This is a team-up of Jaw Rule and Steven Seagal. This also marks the last theatrical release starring Steven Seagal. Hmm. Um, all of his other movies are going to be like direct-to-video, and it's apparent why he is like a fucking bloated mess in this movie. <laughs> He's terrible, um, and... They try to make him seem cool when he is just so not cool. Um, it's a, I don't even really care about the plot of this thing. It's basically supposed to be like a, a prison escape kind of movie, like The Rock or something. It's so dumb, and it's so stupid. Um, 
it's surprised I was really surprised when I saw the budget. I would have assumed the budget for this movie was like five million dollars or ten million. It was twenty five million. Oh so no. They had a legit budget to make an action film with here and it's ooh, it's bad. Like Ja Rule and Steven Seagal have no chemistry at all. They don't look like they're even sharing the same screen. Like it's it's uh it's not and again, it's not even particularly entertainingly bad, aside from occasionally they do some funny things where it's clear that they're trying to make Steven Seagal look like an action star when he's just not not built for this kind of shit. My favorite one is actually there's this scene where he's supposed to like repel into frame, like two actors are talking to each other, and he sort of like repels into the scene um, where it's like there's obviously like a stuntman who drops in with the thing, and then it cuts over, and then there's this just big fat stack of ham that's like <laughs> <laughs> like standing there. Well, that definitely wasn't you who did that. Like he got the drop on them or something. Like <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so bad. Yeah, so it cost twenty five, and it made twenty. So um, there, there seems to be a, a lack of awareness on his part to like. Uh, of his age of his physique and like what he's like how he's trying to portray himself as opposed to maybe how he should be like he's he's trying to be you know tom cruise he should be trying to be bruce campbell and that's the problem i think too with him is that he's not even that old in this like again Mm. you just mentioned tom cruise tom cruise is like older in the movies he does now, I bet, than fucking he is in this and he, shit. And he looks better than Steven Seagal did in 2002. Yeah, like, Jackie Chan still pulls off shit in his mm. new movies. That's like, okay, why, why can't you? Why can't you, Steven Seagal, just, like, lose some weight, try to stay in shape? And everything he's wearing is just, like, big moo-moos. Like, these giant, <laughs> like... They're, they're, they're obviously trying to hide what his actual body shape is, so he just looks like this big tub. <laughs> I feel like I've come up with a lot of inventive ways to describe how obscenely fat he is. <laughs> I feel bad. But you know what? It's his fault for trying to be an action star. Yeah, what's, what's he going to do? Come on this podcast and prove us wrong, Butterball. <laughs> yeah. All right, can we want to move on? Yeah, let's move on. We've got, uh, okay, probably the big movie of the month, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, there it is. Quick follow-up, because we just talked about Sorcerer's Stone, or Philosopher's Stone if you live in the UK. Yeah, if if you're into that kind of heresy. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, big, big movie. Um, Christopher Columbus is, or Chris Columbus is back to direct. Uh, He's, you know, obviously the guy did like Home Alone, Uh, but he also made the first film, so... Mm -hmm. They're kind of sticking with him, which I think was a good decision because, like, tonally, it feels like... I I think it was good to have two movies back-to-back from the same director that kind of gives you the same feel before switching to different directors as the rest of the series would. Yeah, kind of, like, find the footing of the series before you have people, like, kind of give their takes on it. Yeah. Um, I gotta say, though, this is probably, like, my least favorite movie of the series, and the one that I would least want to read and the least want to watch again. Hmm. Um, and it's not to say it's bad. It's still really good, and if you haven't seen it, you absolutely should. You should watch the whole series, and it's integral to the narrative, but it's also kind of the boringest one in my mind, because you're not getting the, the shock and awe of the first one, and this one is two hours and 40 minutes long. Oof. An absolutely crazy runtime on this one. It's way too long, and I think you know it's and it's not even one of those movies. Where it's like, well, what, what could we cut? There's there's a lot to cut in this movie. Hey, Iron Man is not even in this one. Yeah, <laughs> two hours and forty minutes. Jeez. Yeah, it, it's it's so unnecessary. There there are some good 
introductions, though. I think um, you know this is the first one that brings in Jason Isaacs, who portrays Lucius Malfoy. Mm. Uh, he is absolutely great. That's incredible casting. Uh, he has that kind of um, like arrogance that you imagine of Lucius Malfoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely love him. Um, and also Kenneth Branagh does a pretty good job playing this character, Gildeloy Rock, uh, Lockhart, who's only in this oh, one book. Yeah, I, I remember this guy. Because like, they, they have like this rotating like cast of teachers to like teach their one specific class. Yeah, dark, the dark arts. The whole, the whole thing is that mm-hmm. the, the the dark arts position is thought of as being kind of cursed because nobody can hold this job down for more than a year. Yeah, and and, and I remember Kenneth Branagh comes in because he's like presents himself as this really like adept wizard. He's really good at everything, but he's really just some buffoon who's really bad at magic. And yeah, that's the one spell he's good at is wiping people's minds. And he's basically been stealing other people's credits. <laughs> like that's what they established at the very end. And right before, um, like he's about to basically take credit for something Harry did. He's about to wipe Harry Potter's mind. Hmm. You know, and he just doesn't get away with it. I also found it interesting. Apparently, you know, he had to back down from the role, but this was originally offered to Hugh Grant. Oh, interesting. And I think Hugh Grant would have been per- like again, Kenneth Branagh is great. I think he would have been an amazing Gilderoy Lockhart if given a chance. Hugh Grant would have been perfect for it. Yeah, he kind of uh, has that constantly befuddled energy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all in all, it's, it's it's good. Like, this is a, a huge hit. Obviously, people love this world. Um, I actually think the, the next installment, Prisoner of Azkaban, may be my favorite of the series, and it's going to go a totally different place. Yeah, but it does his favorite, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, That's when Gary that, Oldman comes into it. Yeah, yeah, you get you get a lot of interesting characters. David the Lewis comes out of that. Gary Oldman. I'm pretty sure it's your first introduction to Bellatrix. Hmm. Um, a, a lot of new faces come into that one. Um, so yeah, solid movie, but yeah, I can understand why it's not everyone's favorite. Oh, uh, cost a hundred million, which is pretty price, pretty pricey. But hey, it made nine hundred and twenty-five. God damn. Yeah, that is that is a that is a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> it sure is. Um, next, I have Die Another Day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> so yeah, this is okay. a, a James Bond movie. Who directed this one? Do you have it written down? Yeah. Uh, Lee Tamahori. He also made a movie called Along Came a Spider. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Uh, Morgan Freeman. Yeah, I think that was maybe a year or two prior. I remember you talking about that one on one of these retro shows. Yeah. Um, so I, I tried to approach this one with a bit uh, of an open mind because... Uh, I'd seen a couple of the Pierce Brosnan, James Bond movies when uh, when I was younger. And I don't think we were really talking about movies as in-depth when we came across the other James Bond movies that he had been in. Yeah. But I, I didn't really care for like him as a James Bond or James Bond movies in general. They were a bit too like campy for my taste. But I personally like, hey, you know, maybe this is going to be... Maybe this will be all right. I don't want to give Pierce Brosnan a chance. He's not a bad actor. Uh, he, he definitely doesn't like have the same like sort of uh, uh, masculine physicality of like a Daniel Craig, but you know he's he's probably gonna be pretty good. And I sort of watched it, and you know it started off real campy with the surfing. I was like, yeah. oh, go okay, yeah. I mean, this mm-hmm. I, pro I don't... surfer James Bond, <laughs> right? <laughs> All those uh, famous British surfers. Um, <laughs> and but you know it it eventually got to a place like once they they reach like th- the. Oh, because he, he became like a, a POW. He was a POW for a little while. He kind of gets disavowed. For seven years. Right, 
Right, right, right. <laughs> For seven years, they flash forward seven fucking years. Right, where it's like, like the real movie was probably taking place in those seven years. Uh, but you start to get to a lot of like the convoluted James Bond stuff where like there's some sort of, there, there's a villain who manipulates his appearance with like DNA therapy or something. But like the effect of it is he can't sleep, so he has to wear this magic helmet to allow himself to dream or something. But then there's <laughs> the, the general plot is okay. Now I'm gonna build this giant uh, uh, space laser that's gonna take like solar energy, so I can zap people from space with the the sun gun. Um, and like all of that, uh, I'm I'm willing to roll with. Oh, okay, this is like this plot is very uh, bombastic. Um, yeah, and then uh, Halle Berry shows up, and uh, like okay, well she she's the Bond girl, and then she goes away, and she kind of gets replaced by this other uh, lady whose name escapes me, Rosalind Pike. Yeah, uh, comes in like okay, well maybe maybe she's our our female lead now, but then like she takes a heel turn, and uh, Halle Berry shows back up. Like, okay, great to see you. Um. There's like there's like this this chase sequence where he's running from the yeah. sun in his invisible car. That's <laughs> <It> pretty bad. <laughs> it was so silly, uh, and then like I, I think like the the creme de la creme, like the best part of this movie was when he's not only surfing but he's parasailing, and he's not only pa- pa- and it's this super bad like terrible green screen sequence. It is so awful looking where Pierce Brosnan yeah. is holding like a paraglider on a makeshift surfboard. Which I think is like a piece of his car that like popped off or something and riding this giant wave caused by the, the sun gun that was chasing him in the car. It is bad. It is really, really bad. I think yeah. it does a little bit to redeem itself because like the, the scene where he's driving his car through the ice hotel was actually all right. That was okay. Yeah, yeah. But I like, think uh yeah. O- overall the the amount of just uh uh batshit nuts things happening in this movie is a little too much. I think it's good that like this is the last Pierce Brosnan James Bond movie. Uh when they do Casino Royale, it does a lot to just kind of take things back to earth. They kind of ground a little bit more. Yeah, it seems like that's a lot of the trajectories of these different Bond uh characters is that the first ones that they make are like a bit more down to earth but then they just have to build on them they have to continue to exaggerate them mm-hmm. it has to be bigger and bigger with every next installment and i think you're kind of seeing that with this movie this is a widely regarded as one of the worst james bond movies and there are a lot of bad james bond movies so um i think you have to keep that in mind i also think that it hurts the film to an extent frankly that like Austin Powers exists. Austin Powers mm. makes it so this series can't even be itself because it is intentionally like Austin Powers. Like think about every line of dialogue exchanged between him and Halle Berry. It's innuendo. Yeah. That's the dialogue that would be now be in an Austin Powers movie. So like, it's just nowhere. Like it can't even be the cheesy fun that it wants to be because another ser- another film series is already doing it weirder than they are. And simultaneously, you're saying a lot of the other action films that are coming out now are veering more towards the, you know, Bourne style, that kind of gritty, mm. down-to-earth thing, which is what Bond has never done. Like, it's just not the place for that. He is supposed to be a, a drunken, womanizing, 
moon base like <laughs> <laughs> surfer he's supposed to be kind of just this insane weird combination of of alpha male aspects and it's you know he's get, getting pulled in both directions simultaneously by austin powers and Bourne. it's completely lost its voice like that's that's kind of what i think about when i think of this movie and by the way this is like far and away the worst pierce brosnan movie like the other ones are so much better like i mean and that's not even to say like um they're all that great either but like this one especially is just so ham-handed and so over the top and it's just like a lot of this stuff doesn't even make sense like the villain is north korea and they're making a space laser Right, like North Korea can't feed their own people. Right, and they're making a space laser. Like I'm supposed to believe that? Like, come on, pick a better villain. I mean, I, I wonder if that's a uh, maybe the villain was entirely like always meant to be uh, North Korea. Maybe they wanted to pick another uh, prominent rival to the United States in Asia. Like maybe like I, I'm not exactly sure what our relationship with China was in 2002. I wasn't paying close attention to, to, to geopolitical issues. But it could have been. I, I don't think it's uh, too far with with outside the realm of possibility to say like, hey, maybe they originally intended this to be China, but then they wanted to actually be able to China. to show the movie in China, <laughs> so they changed the villain. I'm not surprised if that's the case. I think that it works better when they just have like megalomaniacs, like mm. captains of industry. Mm. Yeah, you, know, you like, can always like pick a CEO and have them be a villain. We're okay with that. Everyone around the world oh, yeah. is okay with. Elon Musk is like a real Bond villain. Right. <laughs> we're, we're watching it happen in real life. <laughs> There's just no Bond to shut him down. Is the Any minute, Daniel Craig's going to break through his window. Yeah. So I, I totally get why they would want to do like a back-to-basics, down-to-earth, more human look mm. at who Bond is when they do reboot this series. Um, and yeah, it's going to be like four or five years before they do that too. So th- th- this is going to be the last we're going to see of Bond for a while. Mm. Keep in mind, there was actually apparently a plan to have Halle Berry become the next 00, but it wouldn't be like 007. She would be her own kind of U.S. operative. Oh, okay. Um, there was like that. The I think that, that was the idea mm. and why she was like you know, such a pl- such a playgirl in this. She was like just as she was just as much of like a boss as you know he's supposed to be yeah and kind of have her do like a, like a spin-off sort of like a, a bond expanded universe yeah hmm. yeah i think the only movie the only moment in this movie where it seems to genuinely be fun and having fun is like the john cleese stuff um like when he's there talking to either like judy dench or john cleese who is like the main boss woman and then his q like those scenes are actually kind of witty and charming and you get it and you know they're stock scenes in every bond film um but they work they were kind of well in this and i, I kind of like it i do think it's also kind of stupid imagine how pissed you are if you're aston martin and they tell you the one because they always showcase a car like there's mm-hmm. always like a car that they get to show off and they do all this cool slick stuff and use it in all these stunts imagine that you're paying all this money to have your car featured in this fucking movie and then they tell you that the big gimmick about it is that it turns invisible. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody can even see your car that you're paying to bet in the fucking movie. Oh, you do get a lot of it right at the end when he's driving his car through the hotel to rescue Halle Berry from drowning. I, that's true. I do think they, they make up for that by showing a lot of those scenes. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is this moment is universally disliked by critics and fans. That said... There are a rare number of fans that think this is one of the better movies and actually love that it is the most over-the-top and campy. Hmm. A lot of people actually don't want this to be a serious series. A lot of them really do think that like the Austin Powers approach 
beats the Bourne approach and that those are the better films are when this series is being just butt fucking stupid. Um, so, you know, the, that's something to be said for it. Oh, and yeah, Madonna is the sword fighting instructor. Oh yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, she yeah. also does the theme song for the movie. Hmm. <laughs> she was the bond uh, theme song person this time around, but wow. Would you have expected her? Yeah, that, that was wild. But like the, the sword fighting sequence in general, like, that was actually pretty good. Not yeah, that was, all, that was all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the budget on this one? Uh, Wait, more or less than Harry Potter? More. I'm going to say more. Yeah, 140. Mm. I, they made it back, though. 140? Or sorry, 430. 430. Yeah. That's a really good return. And why they were like, we're not done with Bond. We're just like, we need to pump the brakes. Like, mm. I, I'm sure that they thought if they tried to do another movie just like that, it probably would have bombed. Mm. Yeah. So, so they went back to the drawing board. Like, okay, he surfed twice, one time with a paraglider. What did he do with the ne- next one? What if he plays poker? Yeah. Well, and it's like, imagine that, you know, surfing is not an easy thing. And it's one that, like, you need to, like, routinely do or else you're probably not going to be good at it. Mm. It's like, imagine if you drove a car to a place and then they took you and put you in a prison cell for seven years and then put you back in front of that car, would you be ready to just zip out of there? Or do you think you might need a second to remind yourself how to drive a car? You'd have to, like, take time in order to be able to eat normal food again. Right. Let alone jump on a surfboard. Yeah, he comes out of prison, of a brutal prison for seven years, and then he surfs again? (laughs) Like, immediately? (laughs) As though... He shaves real quick, he's good to go. That's the worst thing that happened to him, (laughs) is he had to grow a beard. Holy shit. Yeah, this movie's fucking insane. Oh, boy. You want to move on? Yeah, let's move on. Okay, we got a couple more films, and then we're out of here. Um, I didn't rewatch this, but I watched it a while ago. Uh, Talk to her, um, also called Abla con Ella, a Spanish film. I don't know that one. It's made by a guy named uh, Pedro um, Almodovar. Uh, am I saying this right? Almodovar. Um, he made the film Volver. Yeah. Um, yeah makes yeah. Spanish dramas. Uh, it is a good movie. I remember liking it a lot, but I, I didn't go back to watch it. It was kind of a indie darling in America. I believe it was a very big film in Spain when it came out. Mm. Um. We've got Solaris. Did you watch Solaris by any chance? I did watch Solaris. That's the um, Soderbergh. Soderbergh. And who is super... just like who is like burning hot right now, having just made Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, and Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, yeah, lots of, uh, and I was really excited to watch this one, specifically for the reason I was like, oh, it's uh, a, a space like a like a cerebral space drama. And it's mm-hmm. got George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh, or Soderbergh is is directing. Like hell yeah, what could go wrong? And like I don't think it was it was bad, but there wasn't really like for for a movie about like uh, uh, something in space being able to to manifest something you deeply care about and sort of like worm its way into your brain. It just uh, turned out to be a kind of low stakes. Like I was never quite sure what it was that they were like against happening in this particular movie. Like uh, uh, George Clooney is, is not even, I'm not even sure like why he, Oh, he's a, he's a, a psychiatrist mm-hmm. or something. And he's, he's sent to this space station 
in order to figure out like why it is that they've lost contact and what's happening with this crew on here. Kind of like uh, not too dissimilar from like Event Horizon. Hey, like go up to that thing and find out why it's haunted. Um, yeah, but he he gets there. There's only two crew members left, and you don't really see too much of them. It kind of becomes about this relationship that uh, with, with his deceased uh, wife who like, they'll, they'll flash back and show like how they're met how they met in their interactions and the th- sort of things that they talked about when she was alive and then this relationship with this new uh version of his wife they're sort of manifest by the uh the the solaris event some sort of like uh, uh celestial phenomenon that's going on near the space station that is able to do these things for these different characters and it never really gets into the other characters, so it does rely very heavily on George Clooney and their relationship with uh, with his wife, who's played by someone whose name I can't remember. She was also in the Truman oh. Show. Yeah, Natasha Macaloni. Yes, 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 yes. Um, but the uh, overall, like when when she kind of figures out uh, who she is or what she is, because I guess she's not aware of her her sort of. A physical nature when she is manifested but it, it always um the, the most of the time throughout the movie i was kind of wondering like okay what's what's the harm in what's happening here what is it that's actually at stake why why can't this continue yeah I, as i understand it it seems like the whole idea is that whatever this um this like you call a celestial thing that's happening that's impacting the ship. It seems to take the most traumatic memories of mm-hmm. the people and manifest them on the ship in a way that seems like it's meant to heal in a way that seems like it's meant to help them sort of like yeah. bring, bring peace. And we can't to have this, that. This mental conflict that they have, which is why, yeah, yeah. You see like he's going out there because the main guy, like his, his friend back on Earth that we see from the early shots commits suicide. One of the guys on the ship is like someone he knows personally and he kills himself. And he gets there only to find out that the guy's son is on the ship. And that's one of the beings created, one of these um, kind of, not clones I guess, I don't know what you would call them, but it manifests them there, right? Like At one point, it replicates one of the crew members directly. Um, the Jeremy Davies character. It's mm-hmm. like his own internal conflict. And he's the one that's the weirdest of all of them. You know, it seems like his own internal conflict is what draw that about. That's why his ex-wife who had committed suicide is there. Um, and Viola Davis, I don't even think she goes into... Uh, she, she's one of the other crew members. She doesn't yeah. even go into what she's seen other than that she's horrified by it and wants to get off the ship. Um yeah, um, I, I don't know. I, I think... So, uh, one, I would say I have seen the original Solaris, the Russian film from, like, fucking 72 or whatever, and it's three hours long. Oh, my God. It's brutally long, and it feels it like as long as it is. This one is a much more, like, snappy telling of it. This is a much more brisk and smaller scale, and it focuses, again, on kind of the point of the movie, I guess. Um, this is, like, a much more like enjoyable it's 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 very brooding and laboring and how long it takes to get through its plot sure but compared to the original version of it mm. and this is by no means a remake this is not a remake of that movie it's a retelling of the source novel um that's going on here so i'm, I'm actually gen- i kind of enjoyed this movie i think it's actually pretty good 
Um, I think that, you know, you just kind of have to let it be moody. Um, I think a lot of the space shots look fantastic. The the sets and environments look really cool. Well, they have this really interesting uh, visual motif, uh, especially in, in the early bits of the film where everything feels very mechanical, but there's a lot of squares, a lot of cubes everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, uh, you know, he, he starts to see this... this celestial manifestation of of his wife that kind of visual motif kind of fades away yeah that's true and, and i guess that's like probably the big thing that the film focuses in on is this relationship that he has with his wife that that had killed herself because you know they had this kind of like she she has this very hot and cold relationship with him mm. where she's not willing to commit to him there is actually this really dark moment where she without telling him like terminates a pregnancy that they had and i think that's supposed to be sort of this weird parallel where you know when he's on the ship now now that she's he's been dead for a long time she just sort of appears in bed with him like mm-hmm. when he's on the ship and he takes her to an escape pod and just shoots her out into space right right only to then have her show up again or, or yeah or a different one yeah right like, i mean not not the same one right but a totally different one is now manifesting so who, who it, of course doesn't remember that a different version of her has been shot out in an escape pod so presumably like i, I don't know if these sort of manifestations like they do they need to eat do they die this, right. this manifestation could just be jettisoned off into space forever yeah yeah and, and i guess that's supposed to be kind of like a metaphor like that's supposed to be the sort of mm. theme that both of them are dealing with where they lied to each other about these really big things um, I, I don't know. It's it's there's a lot unspoken in this movie. There's a lot that you just kind of have to, you know, you just kind of gotta see it and kind of think about what it means to you. And maybe you might think that it was just a boring movie. <laughs> I mean, I, somebody said that it's like if Event Horizon was about grief rather than horror. Mm. <laughs> I think you know, that's kind of what it is. I, I mean, maybe it was a, was a issue of expectations because I mean I wasn't expecting something like Event Horizon, but I kind of wanted the movie to pick a bit of a lane like are you making a horror movie let's lean into that a little bit more are you making like and, and it just kind of like made this thinker of a, a yeah. relationship piece yeah it's a meditative drama when you look at this thing you would think sci-fi action adventure horror and it's none of those things mm-hmm. i mean i guess it's a science fiction film and it's just but only because of the setting yeah it could have very easily yeah, yeah been on a uh, in a jungle somewhere, and some artifact is causing people to hallucinate things in a research station. True, absolutely. Yeah, it does didn't need to be, you know, set in space, but it's the way that, that kind of makes it claustrophobic and separates mm. these people from from it. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm 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 okay with this movie. I think it's pretty good. I think it's actually worth a watch. But definitely more um, of a thinker than most other things we've talked about this month. And going through his other films, like if you haven't seen Traffic, Aaron Brockovich or Ocean's Eleven, uh, he is a he is on a roll. I would recommend those movies uh, before this one, which kind of yeah. feels like a little bit of a vanity project. And you know, it's um, it did not make the same amount of money that those other movies did. No, it cost forty seven million, which is pretty pricey. But you know, I can understand why he demands a budget like that. Um, and it made only thirty. So it didn't make its money back. It actually lost a little bit of money, but he's probably just saying, oh, how many hundreds of millions did I make with fucking Ocean's Eleven? Okay, sure. <laughs> Let's just do another one of those. Did he do remember, that, remember that traffic? Uh, as he's like uh, rubbing his back with his Oscar. 
<laughs> All right, one last movie to talk about. The only one Wes did watch. I know. He's not here to talk about. He didn't even show up to talk about Treasure Planet. Can you believe that guy? Yeah. Did you did you tell you where he went? He told me. What did he tell you? Well, he, he said he was going to this place called Gaza. He wanted to figure out what's going on with these Hamas people. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, best that makes, of luck to him. That makes sense. He's, uh, yeah, he's a very, very curious person, Wesley. He... He, he, he wants said, to, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure them out." Is what he said. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna settle this. <laughs> no, Wes, noted fan of Treasure Planet. Yep, one of his so favorite films. He did watch this. Yeah, he, um, he watched it several times. He told me. Yeah, yeah, I watched this as well. Did you? I have seen this movie. Okay. Um, yeah, you, my yeah. my younger brother actually liked this movie a lot. So I I don't know that I've ever seen it. Like start to finish in its entirety, but I've seen, I've I've probably seen this movie several times in chunks. So I think I'm actually watching. I'm watching this for the first time. I'd actually never seen this movie. Oh no! Okay, it was an adaptation of Treasure Island, as you might get from the name, uh, Disney animated film. Um, Mm -hmm. But the the sort of like twist of it is, it's Treasure Planet. They're searching for a planet that is. Uh, full of treasure um, so it's in space mm-hmm. and I think like just in terms of like visual presentation I think some of the set pieces are actually pretty nice like especially like the opening set piece or of course they like they, they have this teenage boy going around on his hover skateboard and doing slick tricks and that sort of shit but like mm-hmm. the, it's like a, a, a crescent moon but it's not like a, a crescent because of a reflection of sunlight it's actually it's, it's a spaceport shaped like that crescent, yep. like like uh, like a spaceship. So I, I think like some of the set pieces are kind of like visually fun. Oh yeah, this is a very well animated film, and it looks absolutely great. Um, I think there's a, obviously a lot of like polish on it. Um, that scene you're talking about, where it goes from like their home on Earth, or where I guess they're supposed to be on Earth. I'm not sure where in the galaxy they are, but it shows them going up to the moon. And it's, again, it's you know, it's like in Star Wars, that's no moon. It's literally a mm-hmm. space station. It's a very very cool sequence. The the movies got tons and tons of really nice articulate animated set pieces throughout you like, know, even even any like just like when they're in the gallows cooking or whatever the gal the galley cooking food like a lot of just really nice detail when they're animating that yeah and there's some of the up the updating to do with the characters like uh long john silver is like not a man with a, a, a prosthetic peg leg he's a cyborg so he's got yeah. like these robotic yeah. parts uh, there's some of the, the really nice animation like the character detail put into like the different things with his robotic hand and leg and eye patch mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's interesting too because this really does not fit into the mold of disney films like earlier in the year disney had made Lilo and Stitch, mm-hmm. which itself was kind of a departure, but it was still very much like a kid-friendly, family-focused film. This one's this one's a weird collection of things. There's like a steampunk aesthetic to it that's mixed with pirates, mm-hmm. and it's in space. Like it's doing all of these different things at the same time. It just sort of smashes them all together into one kind of concept. And again, what is the opening sequence you see with this kid? What is he doing? surfing like it's the same kind of shit it's literally the same opening to die another day it's just you you have this teenage kid surfing one of the teen boys like they like to surf right and oh by the way yeah that's 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 who the demo i think that that was what disney saw is like they're like we're crushing it with girls and we're crushing it with young kids 
how do we get the teen boy market interested in a movie like this? And you can tell that that's what they were. This is like a heat seeker directed at that demo. They're trying to get them with all of the different things that they like. Like there's no musical numbers throughout this mm. whole thing, you know? It's, it's a trend. Yeah. It's a trend that we're seeing with Disney films in the millennium is that there's, there's yeah. not so much a, a heavy reliance on original songs in these movies. Cause we talked about like Emperor's new groove journey to Atlantis uh, yeah. Lilo and Stitch, like none of these things are heavy musicals, like we saw from like The Lion King, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, all like the big hits from the '90s, right? And I, I don't know, it's it's a, it's an, I guess we can talk about like what happened with this movie. This is this remains to this day the most expensive 2D animated film ever made. Hmm. It cost 140 million dollars, which is the same as what they spent on Die Another Day, more than what they spent on Harry Potter, and. Globally, it grossed 110. It's not uh, great. Yeah, this is a devastating box office bomb. Uh, this is really, really bad, and one that I'm sure that Disney had to circle the wagons and say, "Guess we're not doing that again. Uh, maybe we don't ever do that again." Um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, you know, and and the thing that's worth noting is that this isn't like some folly on their part. This is. The guy that directed it is John Musker. This was his idea. And he's the guy behind Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Hercules. He's made billions of dollars for Disney. Um, this is just kind of a stumble. This is a project he really wanted to make. And, and you were kind of saying it too, and I agree. This is actually a pretty good movie. It's sh- it's a shame that this is the kind of movie that bombs and like the fucking emoji films make money. You know, mm-hmm. this is actually a really solid movie, and I think that there's a lot going for it. I also think it's nice to see in a Disney film that the villain in it is like redeemable. Uh, oftentimes, if you think about the classic Disney formula, it's like the bad guy is the bad guy, and they're going to fucking die. You know, whether it's like, like Scar or Gaston. Yeah, Ursula. exactly. Mm-hmm. Bingo. They're all of these unforgivable, awful people. And in this one, it's someone that's like kind of ready to sell out the kid from the get go. And eventually, kind of warms up to him, and, and yeah. sees sees some of himself in the kid, and all this, and it's you know it's it's good. And at the end, yeah, he becomes a better person for it, and and is salvageable as a human being, or a, a space alien, or whatever the fuck they are, <laughs> a cyborg. Yeah, there's there's so much like uh, like in South Park the Gilgamesh. I feel like half of these races are fucking Gilgamesh. Where it's just like <laughs> forget I'm about the Gilgamesh. <laughs> <laughs> where none of them like make sense together at all you see no cohesive sense of aliens in this world other than that everything's a fucking alien yeah and you know they don't they don't really like do a whole lot of like repetition of of themes you know like okay well now we're going to go to the place where all of this type of alien lives it has like a very like uh diverse cast of characters where Mm -hmm. like the 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 captain is uh, a, a very different character from from like the first mate and all the different crew members yeah so I, I mean i guess we're kind of the only other thing i would say about this is that it's uh, a really bad idea to release this movie the same weekend as santa claus 2 and chamber of secrets hmm. that's the competition this thing was going up against yeah remember when it was like easter sunday and they released death the smoochie this is like an <laughs> equally bad decision like this is terrible absolutely terrible like no like the two i mean uh, yeah like how much does this add up to 1.1 billion dollars in box office gross from those two films released and then just 100 million 100 million from this is so sad yeah yeah kind of a a rough go of it for for this movie 
Yeah. Oh, and then there's like you know you're saying there's no music, but then there's like that weird sappy pop rock song in the middle of it. Yeah, the, the Goo like Doll song. Yeah, there's yeah. like a Goo Goo Doll song in the middle of this movie and it's, as a montage. And it wasn't like, um, you know, like Lilo and Stitch had like the the Elvis music as a as a montage in there, and like uh, yeah. it's not like the, these movies have been devoid of music. They like have you know soundtracks and scores and like original songs written for them, sure. but they're not like it's not about like getting to the next musical number like mm-hmm. you'd see it of uh, a lot of the other earlier. The classic ninety ones are like Frozen or something, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But the um, like, like uh, Emperor's New Groove had like the the song that was written for it by Sting, uh-huh. and he he was supposed to do the whole soundtrack, but you know, oh, that's a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, we we talked about that a lot when the movie came out. That movie was a really had a really troubled production. Yeah, and that's part of how this movie had a had a pretty um, bloated hundred forty million dollar budget. It's not like they decided three years prior to this that they were just going to make a movie and they'd have hundred forty million dollars to use it. This budget goes from like a ten plus year production run of Jeez. this film. They spent a lot of time making it, and it just sort of dragged on forever. Um, so, yeah, kind of a kind of a sad footnote. I don't know what the next Disney film is going to be after this. I don't know but, either. Um, you know, I, I think this is kind of when we get into the territory of them making some some pretty underwhelming films. I know things like what Home on the Range and Brother Bear and stuff mm. like that comes out in this era. I, f- I forget them all, but but you yeah, know, we'll, we'll see a lot of like big successes from Pixar, and I don't know if they like fully yes. own Pixar at this point, in 2002, but they will come to like own Pixar, and they'll kind of carry the, uh, the 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 heavy weight until you know things like. Frozen and Brave and Tangled and Disney will find their footing again. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, then then they'll then they'll buy LucasArts or, or Lucasfilm and kind of take run that franchise yeah. for all it's worth, and then they'll buy Marvel and then run that franchise for all it's worth. <laughs> they'll and then they'll, they'll yeah they'll just buy it all up, and the, in the long run, everything's going to be either on Hulu or Disney Plus. <laughs> Wow, that's horrifying. <laughs> um, but hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Hulu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, any other movies that we need to? No, no, we got we got to stop. This is this is bad. We need to stop doing this, man. This is <laughs> no, this is good. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> next time we're gonna get Wes on this, and yeah, <laughs> it's fun to watch him fall asleep <laughs> as we go on. I know, right? It would help him if he just you know. Listen to the music. Yeah, maybe watched a couple of movies. <laughs> no, he just wants to watch Treasure Planet over and over again. It's all he's done for the past five years. Yeah. Uh, next up, we'll have an official show. And that'll be good. There's actually some news that we can Hell talk yeah. about and some uh, some new games. I've been playing a couple of new games: Mario RPG and Persona Tactica. So some cool stuff to get to. Yeah. And then we'll start up again with the Pokemon show. Oh yeah, that'll be good. That's it. End of podcast. See ya. <laughs>